0: that we're gonna be in Genesis chapter 25 you can turn there and we'll be picking that up uh, here in just a a few moments had a a, a great Easter last week it was uh, really awesome except for the fact that when I got done I realized that my zipper had been down the entire time (laughs) because I was taking a picture with my wife and I had you know my shirt tails Hang down a little bit, and uh, I must have lifted them up. And my wife said, Your fly is down, babe. And uh, I immediately ran inside to look at the video and said, Did my shirt come up? Did my shirt come up? <laughs> I have never watched one of my sermons so intently, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyway, so that was, that was fun. And uh, hopefully, none of you got an eye full. And Jesus was crucified, like no uh, glad that you're here. I was embarrassed. you know it was sobering because you just look forward to Easter so much and and uh, giving a great sermon or something like that and then to to, to have that happen. It was just it was just funny and, and, and just thinking that God truly is in control. If he uses that, then he can really use anything, right? Okay so <laughs> Uh, you know, we're, we've been in the book of Genesis, and I've, I've been kind of teaching this a little bit like it's been a class, uh, but I, I just want you to know that I think it's absolutely important that you know about Genesis, that you understand what's happening here. It's the foundation, if you will, of our faith. Really, Jesus is the foundation of our faith, but Genesis uh, tells us how we get to Jesus. It also tells us about God it tells us about who he is and what he's done and how he operates. And so I was thinking about this this week, that when you think about, like, if you have a class where you have a lab and then you've got a, a lecture time, so at different points in chemistry, which I was awful at. Uh, by the way, like chemistry and sports and science and and math were not my strong suit, so for all of you geeks out there you, you're you 're amazing uh, but uh, but I am not and so uh, so in in chemistry like we 'd have a lab and then we 'd have like a lecture, and so the lab was about doing experiments that really the professor or the teacher knows what 's going to happen but uh, we don't, and so we do this experiment in this lab, and then we get a lecture on it, or maybe it's the reverse order, but the lecture is really telling us about what happened in that particular place, and what we see in the scriptures between these two passages that hopefully I'm going to get to, Lord willing here, uh, is, is that one of them is the lab, and one of them is the lecture that really kind of expounds a little bit on how this, what this means to us. What it means to our lives and really what it's what it's going to show us is almost a big explosion. In fact, I hope that it's an explosion in your mind. I hope that on some level you might even get upset about this God that you claim to serve. Because I don't think that you really know God until you have really understood Him. You don't really know chemistry. You don't really understand this chemical or the way that it reacts with other chemicals until you see it in action. And then we can come back and we can say, this is why this took place. This is what's happening here. And so in the book of Genesis, we're we're going to pass over a couple of uh, passages here. One of them is uh, where uh, Sarah dies Uh, She uh, finally passes, and Abraham goes and uh, gets a burial plot for her. And then the the second one that we're really passing over is uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, gets a wife. And Abraham sends off to a a faraway land, if you will, sends his servant there, and through God's providence gets a wife for him from his own people. And so Isaac gets a wife, and her name is Rebekah. And so as a result, what we see in chapter 25, beginning in verse 19, it says this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of uh, Paternaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. Do you you see that? You remember Sarah was barren? That's kind of interesting. Sarah was barren. Uh, She is barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Elmo. Afterward, (laughs) afterward, I'm sorry, it was Esau, my bad, my bad, okay, okay. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Jacob's name means like to grasp after the heel. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Favoritism there in the family. That always works out well, right? Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said... I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, kind of an interesting story uh, to read about. It's... uh, An interesting story because it's another sibling rivalry. Remember Cain and Abel, and then uh, Noah's sons, and there there are others as well. You see it later on in Scripture also. That is that there's this kind of sibling rivalry that's going on. And so as you look at this story, uh, some things uh, to note are the fact that, first of all, there's kind of three incidences in there where there's kind of a battle that's going on. But two of them happen kind of at or before birth. And the first one is these kids, they're not just duking it out in the house like my kids are constantly doing. They are duking it out in mom's womb. I mean, they're, they're like slamming each other. If you look at the Hebrew there, the Hebrew says that these two guys were just going at it from the moment of conception. These guys were beating each other up. And so they're they're kind of fighting there. And so Sarah said, "I'm oh, not Sarah. Rebecca, new woman here. Rebecca is like, man, if it is thus, then why is this happening to me?" Some commentators say that she's almost saying, "Why, why would I even want to get pregnant if this was the case?" Almost to the point of like, there's a hint of, "Why am I even living? This is not even worth it." Kind of a deal. What? What is going on here? Why is this fighting going on inside of me? And so God answers her, and this is really important. God answers her and says, uh, two nations are in your womb. There's There's two people groups. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. It's not just that they're two nations. It's that they're opposing one another. They're in actual opposition from the moment of conception. And one's going to be stronger than the other. And then this, the older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Which is weird because in God's economy, or not in God's economy, but in culture at that time especially, what you had was something called primogeniture. Which is this, which is essentially saying that the oldest child and and especially the oldest son gets the most of everything that the family has. In fact, that that son would, would take a double portion. It, it, it would seem like that's what the birthright was. It would take a double portion of all that dad owned. That son would have prominence in the family. They would uh, take care of the affairs of the property. They wouldn't break up the property. Uh, because if you think about it this way, today when, uh, when somebody dies and you break up the assets between the family, what ends up taking place is that you, you basically take this dynasty, if you will, and you break it up into pieces, and so if it's $100,000 and there's 10 people who are getting uh, a piece of that dynasty, then they would take $10,000 each if it's split up evenly. In this day and age, your wealth had to do with your property and along with your family, and so uh, primogeniture was ultimately meant to say, we're going to keep the family together through giving all things to one kid with some things going to some of the other kids, and then as a result, what's going to take place is that. The family unit will stay together. And so uh, this is interesting because the older shall serve the younger is not something uh, that people would be thinking at this time. Now, if you if you remember when we started the book of Genesis, what we said was this, and, and that is that this is a passage or this is a book that's been written to a specific people group. It's been written to Israel. So Israel is a people group. And this and these books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, is written to Israel. It's about God, but it's written to Israel. And so it's written for their understanding. So they're reading this and they're seeing this idea of the older shall serve the younger. What must they be thinking? This is weird because culturally speaking, this is not what we do. So we, we keep going on. So uh, Esau comes out of the womb first. He comes out. His body is like a hairy cloak. Uh, The word cloak there could even be garment. The guy looked like he was clothed when he came out of the womb. This is a hairy dude. I see some of you guys in here, uh, you're not even close. I mean, you might have a hairy back or whatever. This guy was completely covered in hair. And not just any hair, but red hair. And so his name also means red. So he comes out of the womb and then Jacob comes out and he's holding Esau's heel. That's the second thing that takes place. That's it's an omen for what's going to take place and that is that Jacob is grabbing his heel and he is trying to in a sense take advantage of him even though he's a baby. That's this is an omen of what is going to take place. So when the boys grow up, it says in verse 27, Esau was a skillful hunter. So here's this guy, Esau, and he is kind of a man's man. He is a man's man because he is a hunter. He goes out, he kills things. I mean, a lot of us men here would be like, yeah, yeah, this is the kind of guy that we want to hang out with. I mean, and really, Esau is a likable guy when you you think about it. In fact, I was reading one... one commentary, and the guy was saying, I think that we would all want to hang out with Esau more than we would with Jacob, because Esau seems like a really likable dude. There's just some stuff about him, and in fact, his father loved him. His father loved him as well, um, more than he loved Jacob, and it was because he loved to eat of his game. He loved what Esau brought home. He loved the the benefits of that. He was kind of a man's man. But here's Jacob. And Jacob is really described as a tent dweller. Jacob is this guy who, he was kind of domesticated. He was a dude that just really didn't leave the house. He hung out in a tent and, and yeah, he raised animals and so forth, but he was kind of a quiet person. He kind of hung out in the house. He's a homebody. And of course, he's hanging out with his, with his mom and he's working on becoming a chef. And he's, he's, he's working on uh, cooking, his cooking skills and stuff like that. Not that cooking is bad or anything like that. We have some great males that cook here in this home. However, in this church, I should say. But what was going on here is that Esau is loved by Isaac and Rebekah uh, loves Jacob. So there, there's also this kind of split in the family as well so then this day comes when esau goes out in the field and he goes hunting and he comes back and he's exhausted and what he says to jacob is is he says give me some of that red stuff if you look at the hebrew it says give me some of that red stuff i i I want some of this red stuff like dude I'm, i'm famished come on man give me give me some stuff and so jacob is a calculating individual He's a calculating individual, and when you look at him and you see who he actually is, you see, man, you kind of want to say, what a scumbag. Why would he take advantage of people like this? Why would he take advantage of the fact that the guy is hungry? In fact, as Israel's reading this and they see what Jacob is doing here. By the way, Jacob's name gets changed to israel jacob becomes israel out of jacob comes the nation of israel and so israel is sitting here looking at its patriarch and they're seeing what's happening and they're seeing this guy jacob who's in the tent he's kind of a homebody he's not really out doing anything and then here's this hard-working guy who comes in who's so famished and so thirsty or whatever He comes in and Jacob takes advantage of him. See, Israel would be looking at this and they'd be thinking to themselves, this isn't even right. It's not morally right. There's scripture that talks about the fact that when somebody's hungry, you need to give them food. When somebody has, has a need in this way, you should give them what they need. Especially just in this moment, just a little bit of food. There's also scripture that talks about not taking advantage of someone else in a business dealing, wronging them in the midst of that. That means taking advantage of them in such a way because in some way you have them in a position where they have to take your deal. And so Israel's looking at this and they're saying, this guy's kind of a scumbag. This guy is kind of a scumbag. And so what happens is this, Jacob says, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What we see here is we see two guys, neither of which are great guys at all. And the reality is is that Esau more readily looks a lot like the stereotypical American man. Esau looks like this guy who's just kind of uh, living off the land. He's hunting. He's, he's impulsive. He kind of goes wherever he wants, does, does whatever he wants. He doesn't think about tomorrow. He doesn't think about what's going to happen. And so a lot of times, especially as I was growing up in the church, one of the things that I saw was that Esau was a very bad guy, and Jacob, you know, that wasn't so great, but Jacob's a great guy. But what the passage really shows us is this, is that Esau is not a great guy. In fact, Hebrews 12 goes on to say something about him as well, about how he despised his birthright and that this was evil. But then also something else that we see is this, is that Jacob isn't a better guy. Jacob has taken advantage of somebody. Jacob is, in in some respects, when you look at it, he just seems like a swarthy individual. Sorry to all the Jacobs here, so. He seems like a, a, a swarthy individual who's taking advantage of people in this situation. What must Israel be thinking in this moment? What is Israel thinking about in and during this time? Well, one thing we can see is this, is that it talks about how Esau is, uh, he, he comes from Edom. He is, as a result of Esau, he, the, the passage states that he is of, of Edom. Out of Esau comes the people, the Edomites. So we have these people that come from Esau, And then we have these people that come from Jacob. So we have Jacob and Esau, two people groups, Israel and the Edomites. So imagine for a minute that you are Israel, and you're traveling in the desert, and you've got a long ways to go. And so your guy who's leading, you, his name is is Moses. This is out of Numbers, I think, 12. But you go to to the Edomites and say, hey, we... uh, little shortcut through your, through your property here. Do you mind if we just walk through? In fact, Moses says to the king of the Edomites, of Edom, he says, hey, brother, he's recognizing something where he's saying, hey, I, we are Israel of Jacob, and uh, in a, a family way, we are brothers. And so he says, hey, brother, can we pass through your land? And Edom does not allow it. Edom does not allow that to take place. So here is is, is something that we see, and that is that God may be telling Israel this story because of this, because they're traveling around, and the Edomites are after them, and now they're great enemies, and they're still fighting. They've been fighting in the womb, and here they are. Their nations are fighting one another, and so here is God saying to them something. He's saying, take heart because... Ultimately, you are going to overtake the Edomites. You are going to overtake. I know that you're feeling beat down. I know that you're feeling like you don't have what it takes, but you are going to overtake the Edomites. Now, that's one thing that I think God is saying to them. God is saying, take heart, because ultimately I have determined how this is going to take place. But here's the thing. Israel could be thinking on some level, hey, we are a a better people. I mean, look, we have the law of God. We're doing what God wants us to do. We're following him in a a, a pillar of fire by day and the the cloud at night and we're wandering around and we're, we're, we're doing what God wants us to do. And so therefore, why wouldn't God protect us from Edom? Why wouldn't God be showing us this? Why why wouldn't God be working for us? And here's another thing. And that is, what God was showing Israel is that their ancestor, their patriarch, was just as messed up as Esau. Their patriarch was, in fact, in some respects, even worse than Esau. And so here's God, where as he's protecting Jacob, as he's protecting Israel, as he's making a way for them, and he's showing them something, he's saying, it's not because of how amazing you are that I am protecting you, that I am making a way for you. It's not because of this. It is because of my great mercy. It's because of my great kindness that I'm leading you. It's because of my great sovereignty that I have made a way for you. I have provided a way for you in and through all of this difficulty. Why does does God do this? Why does he take the youngest brother in so many different situations and instead of putting them last, he puts them first? Why why does God take the guy who seems like the worst sinner out of all of them and he makes him the head or the patriarch of this nation? Why does God do all this stuff? Why does he take people like this and make them into something in some respects that they are not in and of themselves? See, here's the thing. God always chooses the least deserving person. God always chooses the least deserving person or the least deserving people group. In fact, God tells Israel at one point, he says, it's not because you're more numerous. It's not because you were so great that I chose you. I chose you because of my mercy. I chose you because I decided to. That's what God, See, God is always choosing the least deserving person. And so you have to ask, well, then why is God choosing? Why did God make a choice to save this guy, Jacob, and his family and his people group? Why did he decide to do that? Why does God operate that way? Let's go to Romans 9. some of you know what's coming Romans 9 is so controversial and I love it I love it and we're gonna spend the rest of the next few minutes on this okay the Apostle Paul is, is speaking, he is writing to this church in Rome. And he's saying something about, about Israel, about God's people. He says in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears, uh, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The apostle Paul is saying, I I wish that I could be cursed so that my brothers, so that the people of Israel would actually come into the faith with Jesus Christ. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is saying, I wish I was a curse so that those people would come in. Because here's what happened. When Jesus comes into the world, his own did not receive him. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was an Israelite, a Hebrew. He is of these people. But they did not receive him. They said, you know what? We need to stick with the law. We're getting to God through the law, but then Paul is noting, but they don't come in. So why not? So Paul says this, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Do you remember that passage? God says, not everybody that comes from Abraham, not everybody who is birthed from Abraham, not all of that family is mine. Not all of them. Not everybody. He says this, but through, yeah, that's what I read, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as, as offspring. It's not every kid that comes from Abraham. It's the, it's the kids that are of the promise. So some of these kids have the promise and some of them don't. Who is he talking about? So he says, For this is what was pro- this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah, and Sarah shall have a son. Who is that son? It's Isaac. But remember, there was Ishmael as well. Ishmael was also his son. And here's Isaac, and Isaac is the child of promise, but Ishmael is not. He is sent away. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's a mouthful. Let me tell you what it says. The apostle Paul is building a case, and he's saying, God has always worked in this way. He always works like this. If you never go to your lab and all you're doing is listening to the lecture, if all you're ever doing is listening to the lecture, but you never see how God works, you never see what he's doing, then you may not believe what you're hearing in the lecture. In order to know this God, you not only need to go to the lab, but you need to hear the lecture. And this is what we have to hear about God. Is that God basically says, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, though Jacob and Esau Esau were not born yet, what took place? God chose. God chose. And when they come out of the womb, in some ways we see Esau as the bad guy. But the truth is that Jacob was a bad guy as well. But God decided he chose who would be his and who would not be his. And the Apostle Paul is showing us something. He's saying, why do some people not believe? Why do some people not come to a knowledge of faith? And the resounding answer is this, is that they are not a child of promise. How do we know who is and who is not? That's not up to us. That's not up to us to figure out. That's not us to determine. Romans chapter 10 goes on to say, how are they going to know unless they, they hear the word preached to them? How are they gonna know? How are they gonna believe if they're not if they don't hear the words of the gospel? See what the apostle Paul is lining out for us is, is essentially this: that God does whatever He wants, no matter what your cultural opinion is. But that's not fair. God shouldn't do this, God shouldn't do that, God, God shouldn't choose people. Before they've even had a chance to prove themselves. And God's word to you and to me is this You cannot prove yourself to God enough for Him to save you. You can't do it. And as long as you believe, as long as you believe that you can prove yourself to God so that He'll accept you, do you know what's missing? The truth. You don't know the God. You've never done the lab. You've never done the experiment. You've never experienced this God in this way and come to a conclusion that, oh, this God is really serious. This God is so powerful. This God is so sovereign. This God does whatever He wants, no matter what my opinion is. See, here's here's my belief. Until you soak this in, until you see it for what it is, you actually don't completely serve the living God. But at least in part, you're serving a God of your own imagination. You're serving an Americanized God and you're essentially saying this, I'm basically Esau. I do a lot of cool things I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. And God should just accept me the way that I am. It shouldn't be based on God's mercy. It should be based on my merit. Paul says this in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust for choosing Jacob over Esau? Is this an injustice? Is God somehow less holy because of this? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why does God choose to save based on his mercy instead of on your merit So that salvation is all it is completely of him It is completely his he owns it He defines it. He's determined it He's the one who is holy. He's the one who's merciful and He will take no part in a salvation that is believed to have taken place through the good works of the individual who desires to be saved. It says this in verse 30 of Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it that is a righteousness that is by faith. The people who were not going after the law, trying to do what's right the way that uh, Israel was, the people who thought that they could buy their salvation with their good works, they have not attained it. The people who have are the people who have done that by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. The people who thought, the more I do for God, the better I am. The more I perform for him, the more he'll perform for me. If I do a little bit of good for God, if I end up going to church occasionally as things are getting difficult in my life, if the more I try to you know, uh, listen to some worship music, listen to a sermon, something like that, the more I'm going f- to feel like God likes me and then therefore God is going to do good things for me and God is saying to you through this passage, I'll have none of it. I'll have none of it. It'll be by faith, or you will not have it at all. It will only be because I'm so merciful. I did not save Jacob because he was such a great guy. He wasn't, he's a cheat, he's a liar. I did not save him because of that. I saved him because of my mercy. And ladies and gentlemen, God did not save you because you're a nice middle-class person who stabs people infrequently or not at all. God didn't save you because you're an American. That's the worst lie that we can have. God didn't save you because you grew up in a Christian home. God didn't save you because of any of, of these things because men and women We are just as bad as Jacob. And we are just as bad as Esau. And the ground at the foot of the cross, as they say, is completely level. There is nobody that is above anyone else. See the only way that we come into relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. The story I told you over Easter was about Isaac going up the hill with the wood on his back, and we talked about how this is really a picture, I believe, of Jesus going up Golgotha Hill. And he's going up, but then what happens is this, is that the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac and he says, look, grab that ram out of the thicket and bring that ram and ultimately what this is, is it's a substitution. God says to Abraham, you don't need to sacrifice your son. I have given you a sacrifice to cover the sins, to cover your sins, to cover Isaac's sins, to cover your and my sin and God is saying the same thing to you and I. I'm not Going to save you based on what you've done. It can only be through the sacrifice That is Jesus Christ on the cross It can only be because of his blood that ran down that cross and no doubt Pooled there that blood his blood alone Not your works not your righteousness not how often you go to church not how nice you are to people but it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ It's because of his blood that was shed for you as a substitute so that you could have relationship with God. And so you might ask, well, then how do I know if I'm even saved if God is the one who does the choosing? Like I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he was God and all these things. Hey, guess what? Remember what my brother Tim said at the beginning of the service. You can't say that about Jesus unless God has revealed it to you. How do you know that you're chosen? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he was sacrificed for you? Men and women, therefore God has revealed himself to you and he has shown himself to you. He chose you before time began. God, in his incredible mercy, made you alive with Christ. God, in His incredible mercy, before you were even born, before you were even conceived, before time began, before the foundations of the world, God set His love on you. Not because you were a good person, He just decided. He just chose you. God decided to love you. Do you see God's love? Do you see His love? that it's not because of anything that you could have done or that you would would have done. It's because God is so merciful to you. God's love is so incredible that Paul in Ephesians, he prays that you would know this love, that you would know the riches of his grace, his mercy, that you would understand how gracious God, is that in spite of what you have done, what you are doing, or what you will do, God has already set his love on you. Are you dealing with a pornography issue? Yet you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who was crucified for you and that he was raised from the dead? Guess what? That blood was shed for you and you are his. You are loved no matter where you're at, no matter what you've done. Are you somebody who deals with depression and anxiety and things like that and doubt and you're just saying, I just don't know that I'm saved because I look at my, my life and I'm, and I'm not happy and I should be happy because I'm a Christian and all of this stuff. Don't you understand that it's not because of your disposition. It's not because of your, your, or how happy you are that you are saved. You're saved because of God's great mercy in your life. God shows you are you somebody who's just dealing with the cares of this world and you don't feel like you connect with God enough or you haven't connected with him recently and sometimes you begin to start feeling yourself slip and I want to tell you I don't think that that's great but I got to tell you this that if you are in truly God's, if He has truly called you and if you've believed and put your faith in Him. Men and women, it is not based on how you feel today. It is based on God's everlasting decision to have chosen you. See, God's sovereignty in electing those who will be saved is a point of grace and mercy and profound love. It's absolutely profound in so many respects. And if you don't love him for it, then you've missed it. You missed the lab. You've been listening to a silly lecture and you haven't experienced this, God. Why does God show us that? In Genesis 25 and then again in Romans 9, he's saying the Old Testament is a lot like a lab. I'm showing you that this is the way that it works. And Romans 9 is saying this. And it still works that way. God has always been like this he's the same yesterday today and forever he saves by his own will won't you worship him because of it if you can't and you're just going to get caught up in the theology of this please just read your bible just read your bible more just keep reading it just let god reveal that to you by the power of his spirit let's pray So Lord Jesus, we're here this morning. Lord, there's many of us in here that doubt for one reason or another why we we may or may not have relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that these folks would leave here today with a profound sense of your incredible mercy, your incredible sovereignty, knowing that they have relationship with you because you just lavished them with your love, with your grace, with your mercy, through your sovereign choice. Lord, may you sear into their minds this faith. May they at least desire to have the faith, which is actually a revelation from you in the first place. To even want this is from you. And so, Lord, we praise you that we even want it. And I pray that those of us that came in here today that don't have a relationship with you, that, Lord, we've just been sitting on the sidelines. We're not sure what we think about God. Lord, I'm praying that you would open our eyes, that we would see what you have for us, that we would see you for who you truly are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.